I am always humbled when I have an opportunity to uh, preach or to share here at College Church. I realize that when we gather, to, gather together here in this sanctuary, that we are on holy ground. And I recognize that and am humbled by it. I invite you now, if you would join with me, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Allow the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I grew up in the 1980s. I graduated from high school in Arkansas in 1984. I finished college in Kentucky in 1988. I love the 80s. It has the greatest movies and it has the best music. One of the most famous singers, one of the greatest performers in the 1980s was a woman named Tina Turner. Her number one hit, What's Love Got to Do With It? This morning, as we begin today's message, I want to raise the question that Tina Turner asked. What's love got to do with it? Answer, love has everything to do with it. At the very heart of God is love. At the center of the eternal relationships that exist between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is love. At the very heart of the body of Christ, the church, is love. We love God with our entire being. We love our sisters and our brothers in Christ like Jesus loves. And we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. As Salvation Army theologian and good friend Bill Urey says, love is ultimate reality. But love happens to be one of these words with, that we throw around in the church. We often speak and say the word love. But very rarely do we ever explain or define what we mean by love. So more specifically this morning, I want to ask the question, what is love? I would imagine if I met with you one-on-one, -on -one, a number of you would direct me to Scripture and you would point out 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter on love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. But I would say to you, 1 Corinthians 13 shows us what love does, but it does not tell us what love is. Some of you have read C.S. Lewis's famous work on the four loves. Others of you know that in the Greek language, the original uh, language of the New Testament, that the Greeks had four words for love. And so you might talk to me about storge, you might talk to me about philia, you might talk to me about eros, and you might throw out to me that 
Greek word that we all know that describes God's love for us, agape. But I would say to you that that still doesn't tell us what love is. This morning, I want to give to you a biblical and theological definition of love. Love is composed of two parts. The first part is desire. Love is the desire for union with someone or something. If you love someone, you desire something, you desire some sort of fellowship, some sort of relationship with it. Love is a desire for unionness or oneness, but it's not just desire alone. It is also then the alignment of our will with that desire. It's making decisions and choices that actually bring about union. So it's not desire alone, it's not will alone, but what love is, is desire and will bringing about union. Let me try to illustrate this. If I told you this morning that I love Butterfinger candy bars, what would I be saying to you? What I would be saying to you is that I desire oneness. I desire union. I desire intimate fellowship with Butterfinger candy bars. But if I tell you that I love Butterfinger candy bars, I am telling you not only that I desire it, because if all I did was desire it and didn't act on it, didn't align my will with it, didn't make a choice to go to the store and buy a Butterfinger candy bar, take it home, unwrap it, and eat it, it would not be love. Love is desire and will bringing about union. If I told you that I love the University of Notre Dame fighting Irish football team, what am I saying to you? What I'm saying is, is that I have some desire for union or fellowship or oneness and whatever degree is possible for me given where I am and who I am in life. I desire some sort of relationship with that team. Desire. But it also would mean that I would go and buy some Notre Dame paraphernalia. It means that I would go and buy Notre Dame merchandise. I would spend some time on Saturday afternoon or Sunday evening watching Notre Dame, or at least bare minimal, I would check on the score on Sunday morning to see who won their football game. It's not desire alone. It's not will alone. But it's desire and will bringing about union. If I tell you that I love my wife and children, what am I saying to you? I'm saying that I desire a relationship with them. But if all I did was desire a relationship with them and didn't act 
on it. Didn't make decisions and choices in life to bring about union, which is the essence of love. Then I would not love my wife and children. Let me pause just a moment. Over the years as a pastor, I have met with couples who are struggling in their relationship. And as they come and they talk to me, it's obvious that they have a desire for each other. The desire is there. But they continue to make decisions and choices that take them away from that union. Please hear me. They do not have love. At best, it is only partial love. But it is not full. It is not complete love. All right, this sets us up for the scriptures. You will remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says to his disciples, love your enemies. What is it to love enemy? Well, first of all, it is to come to a place in life where we desire, please hear me, we desire reconciliation with our enemy. And not only do we desire reconciliation, desire, but then we begin to actively work towards reconciliation. Not desire alone, not will alone, but desire and will working towards union. This brings us to the most famous verse in all of Scripture. You all know it, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, God so desired union and fellowship with the world. But what got in the way of that union, that fellowship? Sin got in the way. But God so desired union that he aligned his will with that desire. He acted to bring about union even in the midst of sin. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, at this point, you might be thinking that this sort of biblical and theological definition of love that I've given to you is some sort of syrupy, sappy sentimentality. But I want to be clear this morning that the nature of love does not settle for anything less than true and full union. And if it does not settle for anything less than true and full union, then it will work to overcome any obstacle, any barrier, anything that would get in the way of that union, which is the essence of love. A number of years ago, when I was pastoring in Searcy, Arkansas, I had a young man who had given his life to the Lord. He came into my office. His name was Brian. And Brian had just started following the Lord, had been a Christian for about five months. I had the privilege of baptizing him. But he came into my office because he had a spiritual problem. His spiritual problem was he hated his father. 
As a matter of fact, he said to me, he said, Brother Chris, the greatest joy that I have in life is thinking about my father burning eternity in hell. Burning for eternity. Now, I will say this, Brian, you're right. Uh, you have a spiritual problem here. <laughs> Brian's father was an alcoholic and someone who had not just verbally abused him, but physically abused him as he was growing up in the home. And he hated his father. And he realized as a Christian, that was not good. And what was interesting is that as we began to work with Brian, you could see that the Lord began to transform his desires so that he began to desire reconciliation and oneness with his father. And then not only that, Brian then began to align his will with that desire. We met together in my office, Brian and his father. And in the midst of that conversation, this father was unwilling to recognize that he had done anything wrong in his relationship with Brian. There was nothing wrong with how he had physically and verbally abused him growing up. Now, I want to ask you this question. Is it possible for true union, true restoration of relationship to take place as long as that father is unwilling to confess and to repent of what he had done to Brian? Sometimes we have trouble reconciling love with holiness. Do you want to know at least a great part of what holiness is? Holiness is what love requires for union. Holiness is what greases the skid. It is what allows an adhesive to take place in the relationship of love. Let me try to illustrate that with you this morning. I can tell you this morning that I love you. I love you to the degree to which I am capable of loving you given the circumstances of our relationships. Some of you I know better than others. And so I have a different relationship of love with you. But I can say to you this morning, do I earnestly desire union and fellowship with you to the degree to which I am capable of doing? Absolutely. But it's not just desire alone, but it is also will alone. It's also will as well. That I make decisions and choices that facilitate that union. How many of you realize that if I'm truly going to love you to the degree to which I am capable of loving, given the circumstances of our lives, that it requires you, me, to treat you in respectful ways. It requires me to work to your flourishing and not to your detriment. Do I hear an amen? That's what holiness is. Holiness is what love requires for there to be union. Please hear me. Love is not being a doormat 
Love is not something that enables people in their self-destructive behavior. Love seeks to overcome all barriers, all obstacles that keep us from having that fullness of union, which is love. All of this to set us up for this passage of scripture that we have this morning. In this passage that was read to you, Jesus says not just once, not twice, not three times, but four times, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. He says it first of all in verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and obey them, he is the one who loves me. Verse 23, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And then in verse 24, he states the same teaching by way of negation. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Jesus is saying this. If you desire union, fellowship, oneness with Christ, if you desire to walk with Christ, then you must align your will with his. If we do not align our will with his will, then there is rupture in relationship. There is separation in relationship. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. You will keep my commands. My sisters and brothers, because of the fall, because of original sin, because of the disobedience of the first parents in the Garden of Eden, because of inherited depravity, I will tell you the love of Jesus does not come naturally to us and does not come easily to us. And if you and I are gonna be set free to love Jesus, then God has to address the problem of desire and the problem of will. Because the truth of the matter is, as a result of the fall, you and I neither really desire union with Christ, nor are we able to align our will to bring about that union. First is the problem of desire. Martin Luther, the great reformer, helps us to understand the problem of the fall. Luther said, as a result of original sin, that you and I come into this life in such a way, hear this vivid language. We wickedly 
curvedly, viciously seek all things, even God, for our own sake. Luther's point is this. The fall doesn't bring atheism into our lives, although it can. What the fall does is that it may allow us to acknowledge God. It may allow us to worship God. It may allow us to serve God. And please hear me. The fall can even empower us to lay down our lives for God. But here's the kicker. For our own sake. Luther's point is this. That we pursue God not as an end in and of itself, but we pursue God as a means to achieve and realize what we ultimately love in life. God simply becomes a means and not an end. There's a story told in the history of Christianity. It's not found in the scriptures but it's one of these stories that you say to yourself, it could be true. The story goes like this. Jesus was with his disciples one morning. And at the very beginning of the day, he tells his disciples to scatter and find a rock that they will carry throughout the day. And so the disciples scatter looking for just the right rock that they will carry through the day. Some get larger rocks, some get smaller rocks. Peter, though, wanting to obey the letter of Jesus' command, if not the Spirit, begins to find the smallest rock he can find. And he finds a pebble. He picks up that pebble, and throughout the day, he's patting himself on the back for his wisdom. Especially as he's seen other disciples who are struggling to carry their larger rocks. That evening, Jesus and the disciples make camp and around the fire, the disciples gather. And at a certain point in the evening, Jesus snaps his finger and the rocks turn into bread. Poor Peter. Didn't even have a morsel of bread that evening. And he goes to bread, I mean, he goes to bed, not only angry, but very hungry. The next day, Jesus gives the same command. Find a rock that you will carry throughout the day. The disciples scatter. This time, Peter finds the largest rock that he can carry. And so as he's going through the day carrying his large rock with great difficulty, with great struggle, the only thing that keeps him going is that he will finally have his belly filled at the end of the evening. Well, they come to the place where they spend the night. 
They're gathered around the fire. And this time, Jesus doesn't snap his finger. He does not turn the rock into bread. And Peter has had all he can take. And so in anger, he unloads on Jesus. And Jesus simply turns to him and asks, Peter, were you carrying that rock for me? Or were you carrying that rock for you? My sisters and brothers, this is our problem. We're willing to serve Jesus as long as Jesus gives to us what we ultimately love. That love can be fame, that love can be fortune, that love can be recognition, that love can be self-fulfillment, that love can be the desire to be loved by others, to be accepted by others. But we use God as a means to that ultimate love and not an end in and of itself. My sisters and brothers, I want to ask you this morning, what do you desire? What do you long for? Do you desire nothing more in this life than union and fellowship with Jesus? Or is Jesus simply a means to something that you love and desire more? Whatever else it is to be born again, whatever else it is to be spiritually regenerated, it is to have a transformation of our desires so that our love of Jesus is the end of our lives and not the means to something more or beyond. We love him above all else. That is the problem of desire. We must come to a place, if we're truly going to love Jesus, that he is the ultimate end for everything that we say and do in any other love that we may have in life. But there is a second problem because love isn't just the desire, but it is also the will. The alignment of the will with that desire. I don't know if you've ever experienced this in life, but it is a miserable life. It is a horrible existence to desire union with Christ above all else and not be able to align your will with that desire. This is what's described so vividly in Romans chapter 7. The good that I want to do, I desire to do. I am unable to do that which I do not want to do. I find myself 
doing? The problem of the fall is that even when there's a transformation of our desire, we struggle aligning our will with that desire. A number of years ago, this now, I was trying to think about it this morning, I think it was six years ago, I found myself in Edinburgh, Scotland. And I was hiking outside of the city. And I came, as, as on this path, I came to a stone wall. And the path led to some steps that went to the top of the wall. And then there were steps on the other side that you went down. But I came to this wall and for some reason or another, this idea entered my mind. Chris, why don't you just jump over the wall? Why don't you just jump over it? It'd been a while since I'd had a nice challenge like that. And so I did. I backed up. I knew I couldn't do it standing still. And so I began running towards the wall and I jumped as high as I could. And I knew in the moment that as soon as I left the ground, I was not going to clear the wall. And sure enough, my legs hit the very top of the wall and I tumbled over to the other side. And being a good American, what was the first thing that I did? I looked up to see if anybody saw what happened. And lo and behold, as fate would have it, or maybe God in his providence had it, there was a group of young people that were heading on the other side and they saw everything that had taken place. They immediately ran to me to see if I was all right. I have to tell you this, it's the first time that it happened in my life, it's happened since then. But as uh, they were helping me and making sure I was all right, God bless them for that. Uh, a couple of them in the back, I heard them say this. What was that old man thinking? What was that old man thinking? I wanted to jump over that wall, recover the days of my youth. I gave it my very best shot. And I failed. Many of you know what it is to have a desire to follow Jesus, walk in obedience to him, to truly love him and not have the strength of will to walk in obedience. There may be those areas of your life in which those, that obedience comes fairly easily. But for most of us, there are strongholds in our lives that keep us enslaved. And keep us from being able to truly align our will with Christ's will. But Jesus in this passage of scripture has good news. And Jesus said this, he's speaking of the spirit of truth who said that the world, this is verse 17, the spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. Here's what Jesus says. For he lives with you and will be in you. 
Verse 26, speaking of the Spirit, but the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Please hear me. Jesus isn't just talking about intellectually reminding us of everything that he has taught. But he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that he will, in fact, empower you to walk in what you know of him. To walk in what you know of Christ. We know that this giving of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about is going to take place on the day of Pentecost in which the Holy Spirit will not only be with them, but the Holy Spirit will be in them. And it is not by accident that the Spirit of God falls into the disciples on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is a Jewish festival that celebrates 50 days, hence the word penta. 50 days after the deliverance of the children of Israel and the Passover feast in Egypt. 50 days afterwards, God gave to Israel the law on Mount Sinai. And Pentecost celebrates the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. But you will remember that the Israelites, even when they wanted to obey the law, they could not obey it. And the prophets then, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah prophesied of a day in which the Messiah would come. And what will the Messiah do? He will give the Spirit who will take the law that is written on tablets of stone and write them upon the heart. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27 says that when the Spirit comes, He will write the law upon our hearts. Many of you know Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. And you will notice that that is singular, it's not plural doesn't say fruits of the Spirit. It says the fruit of the Spirit. And you will notice what is the very first thing that is said. The fruit, the one fruit of the Spirit is, it's love. And I want you to know joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control is all that comprises of love. The Spirit gives to us everything necessary. For us to love Jesus. There is a work of grace that is unleashed by Jesus Christ in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that enables us to not only desire Jesus above all else in life, but enables us to align our will so that desire and will come together in such a way that anything that comes into life that would disrupt or break or interrupt that, it will work to overcome and address. My sisters and brothers, that is good news. You can desire Jesus above all else 
And you can be empowered through the Spirit to align your will with Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.